the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering. We're going to take a look at some of the headlines and later this hour we'll hear from Pastor Jeff Peabody, author of Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. But first, some of the day's headlines. Well, a Wagner paramilitary group attempted a coup in Russia before negotiating an exit for their leader, Prigozhin, to Belarus. It's not clear what the status is for members of that group, however. Well, the Kremlin announced on Saturday that it was dropping the criminal case against uh, Prigozhin, the owner of Russia's feared Wagner paramilitary group, after Prigozhin accused Russia of attacking his forces in Ukraine and threatening to effectively overthrow Russia's Ministry of Defense. In less than 24 hours, Prigozhin sent his uh, forces from Ukraine into the southern uh, part of uh, Russia, where they seized Russian military headquarters. And then his forces traveled hundreds of miles north on their way to Moscow. On the way, there was an intervention by Belarusian president uh, to stop the mutiny. Well, on Sunday morning, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, was set to leave for Belarus under the deal brokered by the Kremlin as part of that deal. Uh, Wagner troops would be pardoned and criminal charges against Prigozhin would be dropped. Well, both Putin and Russia have been weakened in the wake of this attempted coup, uh, desperately projecting that everything was as it was. The Kremlin is only emphasizing how much has changed. These were um, 36 hours that provided a glimpse of the end of Russian President Vladimir Putin's rule of a, of a sort. Almost every action was improbable at best a week ago. Much was um, inconceivable 17 months ago. Putin has been left reacting, silent initially and then bombastically angry and confident, promising inevitable punishment for the scum, as he put it. But hours later, this was all forgotten. Putin's emotional states um, uh, state were it known is arguably less revealing than his actions by letting Prigozhin go and apparently sweeping the entire insurrection under the carpet. He's appeared the weakest yet in 23 years. The Wall Street Journal reports that as a result, the authority and self-image of the Russian state has sustained lasting damage, likely fueling future challenges to the uh, uh, to its uh, writ, regardless of what happens to Prigozhin. Uh, that is essentially so as the war in Ukraine, which helped precipitate the Wagner mutiny, continues raging uh, with no end in sight, causing mounting casualties on both sides. In Moscow, um, also feelings uh, about Prigozhin were mixed at best on Saturday. There was a moment of a total loss of control. Moscow was uh, already awaiting him. The city froze an expectation that some groups of people would enter and people were not afraid. Putin was afraid of him, but not the uh, country's population. Again, that's what the Wall Street Journal reported. Face the Nation reported that former U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan, Sullivan rather, says the deal Belarus brokered between Putin and Wagner Group chief Prigozhin is evidence of the weakness of Putin, that he was willing to strike a deal with someone he calls a traitor. What strong leader does that? 
In other news, Merrick Garland says questioning the Department of Justice is an attack on an institution that is essential to American democracy which is actually a constitutional republic. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday compared criticism of the Department of Justice over allegations of a two-tier justice system to an attack on democracy. Hunter Biden has struck a deal with federal prosecutors to avoid prison by pleading guilty to two misdemeanor tax crimes and admitting to a gun charge that could be dismissed. Court records released earlier last week show. Department, uh, some have uh, chosen rather to attack the integrity of the Justice Department by claiming, excuse me, that we do not treat cases alike. This constitutes an attack on an institution that is essential to American democracy. Nothing could be further from the truth. Again, quoting Garland Uh, for um, he is, of course, right. As far as it goes, the Justice Department is indeed essential to American democracy or rather the American Republic. That's why we're in the fix we're in, because the Justice Department is now a public relations office for those whom the regime favors and a no holds barred instrument of vengeance against those whom the regime hates. Those who are attacking it are not against the institution at all, but against the mess that Garland has made of it. Um, The New York City Pride Parade participants walked the event topless and, well, bottomless as well, while chanting, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. The group of progressive New York City Pride members sparked outrage after revealing the radical agenda it has in store for children, at least that group. The extreme activists were unafraid to hide their plan to indoctrinate minors through the LGBTQ propaganda, something uh, leaders on the Republican side have warned the country about. The march included adult males dressed in minimal women's clothing and women uh, bearing their exposed breasts at a Manhattan park where families frequently go. What kind of... um, People do this in front of children. New York City is another lost city, Graham Allen suggests. A Florida judge temporarily blocked a law keeping children from viewing drag shows. National Review reports that U.S. District Judge Gregory Presnell has issued a preliminary injunction blocking a Florida law which would bar minors from attending drag show performances. The lawsuit made on behalf of Hamburger Mary's, a venue which was uh, hosted drag shows for nearly two decades, alleges that the legislation undermines the First Amendment and freedom of expression. Although the state law does not explicitly reference drag shows, it aims to limit youth access to adult live performances. Judge Presnell questioned Republican arguments that blocking the law would harm the public by exposing children to adult live performances. Well, Axios weighs in. Florida already has laws on the books that penalize exposing children to obscene material, the judge wrote. Along with the redundancy, the law's vague language makes it susceptible to standardly standardless overboard enforcement, which could sweep up substantial protected speech. The policy also doesn't include a, a carve out to allow children to attend a banned performance with a parent. Mayor Eric Adams defended actions to move illegal immigrants in New York City to South American countries and China on the taxpayers dime after lashing out at leading Republicans for busing asylum seekers to Democrat led cities, sanctuary cities. New York Mayor Eric Adams turned around and did something similar, sending dozens of migrants to red states like Florida and Texas. And Adams didn't stop at the nation's border between April of last year and April of this year. New York City spent about $50,000 to resettle 114 migrant households in cities around the U.S. and the globe. Some were sent to countries in South America and one all the way to China. 
Of course, they claim things are different when they are the ones doing the relocating. National Review reports that Kate Smart, a spokeswoman for Adams, defended the move, arguing that it was different from what Abbott and Governor Ron DeSantis had done. In uh, contrast, New York City has worked to connect individuals with friends, family and networks, whether in New York City or outside of it, Smart said. We are not coercing people to leave. We are not suggesting or recommending locations. We are not presenting any kind of false choice. They're helping people who want to reconnect with loved ones or communities to do so. Now, interestingly, is this what uh, the U.S. tax dollars are supposed to be used for? Relocating people who enter the country illegally to locations they now prefer. An NBC poll revealed mass discontent over the direction the country is heading the New York Post poll again, voters are souring on the state of the nation with a stunning 74 percent saying the U.S. is on the wrong track, according to a survey released on Sunday. The NBC poll found just 20 percent of respondents say America is moving in the right direction. The last time voters were that bitter about the nation's course in 1992 and 2008, respectively, the party in control of the White House changed hands. NBC's uh, Chuck Todd noted in Unveiling the results. The RNC research says the NBC poll, just 20 percent of voters believe this country is headed in the right direction. Seventy four percent say the country is on the wrong track. Reporters peppered uh, White House spokesperson Corrine Jean-Pierre with questions about the president's business dealings. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre was bombarded with questions pertaining to the growing Hunter Biden scandal at Friday's press briefing. The House Ways and Means Committee released explosive testimony from IRS whistleblowers who alleged misconduct in the handling of the tax probe investigating President Biden's son. Among the findings was an alleged WhatsApp uh, text message Hunter Biden sent to a Chinese business associate using his father as part of what uh, uh, Republicans say was an illicit scheme. The White House Counsel's Office repeated its uh, claim that the president was not in business with his son and that Justice Department decisions in its investigations are done independently without White House involvement. Danny Du Urbina said reporters turn on Jean-Pierre, gang up on her for four minutes, straight asking about Joe Biden's connection to Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings after the bombshell text message revealed criminal corruption. And Larry O'Connor weighs in. This is not how a White House with nothing to hide behaves. Well, we'll see what happens next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to uh, look at some of the day's headlines. And later this hour, Pastor Jeff Peabody, perfectly suited, the armor of God for the anxious mind. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind KPDQ pastors that... KPDQ's Pastors Masters is coming up. This is the first time in three years. That's coming up three weeks from now, July 17th, sponsored by Adventist Health. We would like to invite area pastors and ministry leaders to join us for a day of golf and fellowship at the KPDQ Pastors Masters Golf Tournament, presented again by Adventist Health. Portland. Monday, July 17th at the beautiful Langdon Farms Golf Club in Aurora, just south of Wilsonville. The 18-hole golf scramble starts at 8 a.m. is followed by a delicious buffet lunch. The cost to attend is just $25 and that's for 18 holes. And the first 50 pastors to register will also receive a Pastors Masters ball cap. Space is limited, but there is space for you, so please register today at kpdq.com. It just won't be as much fun if you're not there. Again, that's coming up on the 17th. Well, the Supreme Court is preparing to issue a ruling on affirmative action in university admissions this week. 
The court is poised to rule on the subject at uh, universities in a pair of cases involving Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. A group called Students for Fair Admissions sued the elite schools, accusing them of unfairly factoring race into their admissions processes. Well, the group pointed to the high test scores of Asian American and white applicants who were rejected. Students for Fair Admissions argue that Harvard was violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits racial discrimination by schools that receive federal funding. In other, uh, the other case, the group accuses the University of North Carolina of violating the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause by considering race in its admissions process. If overturned, corporate hiring and recruiting practices could be next to land in the crosshairs. All Fortune 100 companies have publicly championed DEI commitments HR communications and in-house counsel say they're monitoring the case closely and are preparing messaging based on the scope of that ruling. Major League Baseball is focusing on recruiting black players to make their teams more diverse. Why bother signing the best skilled athlete for a position when you can uh, virtue signal for um, your fan base? Well, that's a question being asked by opponents. A recent study from the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sports at Central Florida found black U.S. players represented just 6.2 percent of players in Major League Baseball opening day rosters, down from last year's previous of 7.2 percent. Both figures are the lowest recorded in the study since it began in 1991, when 18 percent of players were black. Well, last year's World Series was the first since 1950 without a U.S. born black player. Major League Baseball's efforts are already yielding results. A growing number of players primed to go pro are black. MLB told uh, AP News that approximately 15% of the players featured in a recent showcase preceding July's draft were black. In last year's draft, four of the uh, first five players selected were, in fact, African-American, a first in MLB's history. All four hailed from the Dream Series, an MLB Major League Baseball camp for young black players. The... um, Uh, League reported in April that their diversity efforts had yielded black players making up 13 percent of the top 100 selections. The increased diversity yield may be credited to Major League Baseball's numerous initiatives and hundreds of millions in funding dedicated specifically to training up black players. Transdim Barry Laughlin, a.k.a. Stacy, has been arrested for child pornography in 2012. um, Barry Lawton became the first openly transgender-identifying individual to become a state lawmaker in the country. The left media celebration of this uh, progress was short-lived, as the New Hampshire Democrat would soon resign following revelations of a previous felony credit uh, fraud conviction. Despite his criminal past, the uh, uh, Democrats would win election again in 2020, only to resign in 22 after he was arrested for stalking and harassing a woman online. Now the trouble... A former lawmaker has been arrested yet again, this time on four counts of distribution of child pornography. It would seem the um, deviancy should have been a dead giveaway that he was not a fit lawmaker, but three times, uh, three strikes, rather, you're out. Well, Texas Christian University has apparently fallen far from the faith indicated by its name, as the school is offering a course titled The Queer Art of Drag. The course is offered through its Women and Gender Studies Department and is taught by a professor who engages in drag shows. One of the course requirements is for students to engage queer theories in relation to performance practice by creating their own drag persona, and they will perform during the school's annual Night of Drag. The Bible makes clear that God created human beings in his own image, male and female. 
Jesus himself reiterated this fundamental binary truth on human sexuality when referencing marriage. Evidently, TCU believes it knows better. Woke and weaponized chat GPT scolded a female athlete who just didn't get it quite right or left. Recently, in an effort to create a more succinct message for a Twitter post, NC2A volleyball player Macy Petty decided to employ the new artificial intelligence chat GPT to help her out. However, after inputting her paragraph and instructing the AI tool to shrink down her message, not to change it, she received an unexpected reprimand. This is from artificial intelligence. According to Petty, chat GPT effectively undercut her attempt to present the message she wanted to emphasize, uh, which was to focus on girls sports that they are for girls only and that allowing transgender identifying boys to play in girls sports amounts to robbing girls of their chance to play. Well, chat GPT that has to be programmed by someone responded by arguing that it's important to emphasize inclusivity and equality in sports rather than promoting exclusion based on gender. It went on to add sports should be accessible and welcoming for all individuals, regardless of gender. What this episode demonstrate is that despite the claims otherwise, AI tech will naturally reflect the bias of its humans creators. So don't let AI do your thinking for you. On COVID's origin, well, on Friday, the administration finally released its declassified report on the question of the origin of COVID. Importantly, the report noted that all U.S. intelligence agencies now believe the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China to be the source of the deadly virus. Other than that significant conclusion, there's little other new information from the report. Given the recent revelations of the first individuals to become infected with the novel virus being Chinese scientists working in the Wuhan lab and the fact that they were engaged in studying coronaviruses combined with the preponderance of evidence pointing to a lab rather than natural origin, the report's conclusions is not surprising. That said, the report further notes that almost all intelligence agencies believe that COVID was not engineered while also observing that some scientists in the lab did engage in genetic alterations of coronaviruses. Merrick Garland called criticism of the Department of Justice an attack on democracy. The rebellious mercenary soldiers who briefly took over a Russian military headquarters on an ominous march toward Moscow were gone Sunday, but the short-lived revolt has weakened President Vladimir Putin, just as his forces are facing a fierce counteroffensive in Ukraine. Under terms of the agreement that ended the crisis, um, the leader of the group who led the Wagner troops in the failed uprising will go into exile in Belarus, but will not face prosecution. But it was unclear what would ultimately happen to him and his forces. House Intel chairman says that um, Trigozhin had the, a number of accomplices inside Russia, and some are questioning whether or not there will be cleaning house, so to speak. The House GOP says almost all migrants at ports of entry are being freed into the United States, and the U.S. filed its first ever charges against a Chinese fentanyl manufacturer. Montana has become the third state reporting suspicious letters received by GOP officials, and a new poll shows a staggering wrong track number under Joe Biden. Bud Light sponsored pride events with naked people and others concerning uh, uh, things near children. A judge blocked Wyoming's first-in-the-nation abortion pill ban while a court decides the lawsuit. And New York City turned up the heat on wood and coal-fired pizzerias, demanding restaurants slice emissions by 75 percent. States are weighing uh, uh, charges by the mile, charging rather by the mile as fuel taxes plummet. 
And Sweden shocked Europe by abandoning the unstable green energy agenda and returning to nuclear power. Foreign intel agencies say Iran is on the cusp of testing its first nuke. And um, NASA is committed to planting a pride flag on the moon by 2030. Well, maybe not. On this day in history, 1870, the first section of Atlantic City, New Jersey's boardwalk is opened. 1900, U.S. Army Dr. Walter Reed begins his research into the cases of deadly yellow fever. The U.S. Public Health Commission, headed by Major Reed, would find that the deadly disease was transmitted by a certain strain of mosquito. 1963, President John Kennedy visits West Berlin, where he delivered his famous speech expressing solidarity with the city's residents, declaring, Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner, which, by the way, was a pastry. 1977, Elvis Presley performs his last uh, concert at Market Square Arena in Indianapolis. 1990, President Herbert Walker Bush goes back on his uh, No New Taxes campaign pledge, which many say cost him his reelection bid. 1993, President Bill Clinton announces the U.S. has launched missiles against Iraq uh, targets because of compelling evidence Iraq had plotted to assassinate former President George Herbert Walker Bush. And uh, finally, in 2018, General Electric is removed from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, where it had been an original component in 1896. It's replaced by the Walgreens drugstore chain. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Pastor Jeff Peabody, perfectly suited, the armor of God for the anxious mind. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. What do you do when your own mind turns on you? Fear, anxiety, and the critical voices in your head can be overwhelming, even if you believe Christ died to free you from all of those things. When he found himself in a mental and emotional meltdown, my next guest, Pastor J.D. Peabody, reached for the armor of God. In the process, he discovered God's protection and grace were far greater than he had previously imagined. Perfectly suited... His book explores the armor of God through the lens of personal struggle, showing how the ancient metaphor for God's care is powerful for his embattled children in every generation. The full title of the book, Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. Well, my guest is the founding pastor of New Day Church in Federal Way, Washington, a graduate of uh, graduate rather of Fuller Seminary and Biola University. He's written for Worship Leader, First Things, Christianity Today and Plow.com. He and his wife live in the rainy but beautiful Pacific Northwest, you know, the same area we live in. And we're just delighted to have uh, have you with us today to talk about your latest book, Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I appreciate so much that you have shared elements of your story. I think it really helps those who struggle recognize that this is more common than we might imagine. And the fact that you serve in a pastoral role, I think, really helps as well that you've been vulnerable in acknowledging your personal challenge um, and where you found help. So first of all, I want to commend you for the book uh, and for the sermon series that I guess this book uh, came out of. Yeah, you know, um, it was it was really interesting. I had never really uh, seen the armor of God in through the lens of anxiety before. But mm-hmm. once it was in the midst of my own struggle, uh, I, it just kind of opened up in a whole new way for me. And I was so grateful. Well, you write about uh, your struggles with anxiety. Um, talk a bit about when you first noticed this challenge and how that played out in your life. Yeah, uh, you know, for most of my life, uh, 
I, I hate to admit that I was really largely out of touch with my emotions. Um, and maybe that's a, a typically male uh, fact, but uh, I, I just, at any given time, you could ask me how I was feeling. And I probably couldn't tell you because I was just disconnected from what was going on inside. Uh, and yet our, our brains and our bodies are feeling it, even if we aren't aware of what's going on. And eventually they're going to get our attention. And uh, sometimes that comes out sideways. And for me, it, it came in the form of what I what I refer to as kind of my emotional uh, mental meltdown, where all of a sudden I just found myself being bombarded with these intrusive, unwanted thoughts that it just felt like my mind was spinning out of control. I told people it felt like my brain broke and, uh, and I didn't know what was going to happen, what was happening. It was, it was frightening to me and it was alarming. And I, I went on a walk with a friend of mine who also be a therapist and uh, as we're walking along, I'm just I'm just crying, which was also very uncharacteristic of me. And I'm just pouring out my heart. And I get to the end of my long uh, tirade here, and and I say to him, uh, I I I'm not an anxious person. And he looked at me and he laughed. And it was not the reaction I had been going <laughs> for, um, but. Uh, but it really caught me up short and it made me realize uh, it was like he was saying, have you ever even really looked at yourself? Mm. And I, 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 it caused me to um, really take stock and begin to uh, see myself differently and a step back. And, and that kind of really uh, led me on a journey that's led right up to today of, of kind of beginning to see, oh, yeah, there's there's a lot more going on under the surface than I realized. Yeah, I think that's probably true for most of us. The scripture says, be anxious for nothing. And it wouldn't have uh, merited its own <laughs> its own verse, if you will, if it wasn't really common among us that we tend toward anxiety, some more than others. So is what you're telling me it's possible to be in a position of leadership, to be a worship leader, a pastor, a women's ministry leader, a parent, and still still struggle somewhat in these areas and be a Christ follower? Absolutely. And I think I think that's actually part of the struggle for Christians in particular is because of verses like that. We we read those and we go, okay, well, this, the Bible says, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't be afraid. And I'm feeling these feelings. And so then we feel guilty for having these feelings and we compound our suffering by suddenly now we're, we're a bad Christian because we're experiencing this. And so then that leads us to either trying to pretend and, and perform for people to say, oh, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, or, or we push it down and we, we bear all this guilt, when I think um, I, at least I have kind of come to a place of learning to read those verses a little differently and see in them not so much reprimand as reassurance. And yes. so uh, it, it's like a, a father, uh, it is our father <laughs> saying to us, you know, you don't you don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid uh, because I've I've taken care of these causes that are that are alarming you. And so uh, to be able to receive it less as a as a scolding and more as a comfort. Absolutely. In referring to your own book and we're talking about perfectly suited and I love the, the title, by the way, you say that this is a book about protection and vulnerability, about defensiveness and pain and avoidance. 
Uh, tell us how this book is about all of those things in the context, not only of exposing those areas where we are vulnerable, but how the armor of God um, is, in fact, designed for the anxious mind. Sure. Well, you know, I think, um, like I was saying before, if if we are feeling uh, that that not only are we are we experiencing all this anxiety, which for me felt like something that it it wasn't like I could just choose to turn it off. It it was it felt beyond my control. Uh, but but when it feels like this is something that you you shouldn't be feeling, then uh, you're going to be avoiding that. You're going to be trying to pretend it doesn't exist or push it down. Um, and so you you begin to rely on your own uh, self-defensive protection kind of mode to to put shields up around yourself uh, instead of just bringing it to God. Because, you know, uh, grace is for all these things that we we can't fix ourselves. That's that's why Jesus came, uh, because we couldn't fix the problem of sin and all the brokenness that is attached to that. And so um, to to instead go to him and and realize that the the armor of God is really his his gift to us. You know, I, I grew up in a in a Christian home where uh, I, I heard about the armor of God all the time growing up and. And really, it felt like the the emphasis was typically placed on the picking up and putting on the armor, mm-hmm. and and so uh, there was there was so much stress on what you're doing with the armor that it it could become one more thing to get right uh, for God, rather than to say, oh, God is telling me I have I have done this on your behalf, and this is this is about uh, your protection because if I'm if everything, if all my security is in the way that I'm picking it up, then that's not really God's protection for me. That's me protecting myself. And so learning to to view the armor of God in a whole different way and see uh, that it's really all about Jesus and his grace for us and um, to receive it um, has, has been a big journey. We're talking about the book Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the armor of God does, in fact, uh, address this challenge that that many of us face on a regular basis. Again, my guest is Pastor Jeff Peabody. He is the um, founding pastor of New Day Church in Federal Way, Washington. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor J.D. Peabody. He's the founding pastor of New Day Church in Federal Way, Washington, a graduate of Fuller Seminary and Biola University. He's written for Worship Leader, First Things, Christianity Today, and Plow.com. He and his wife live in right here in the Pacific Northwest. His book, once again, is titled Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. Um, we often live with the illusion that a life of trusting God equals fewer problems. I'm not sure where that concept comes from, but is there a danger in expecting that I'm a follower of Christ and therefore uh, it's pretty smooth sailing from here on out? Yeah, I think that is just such a natural uh, way that our minds work is we we think that uh, if if God is asking us to live a certain way uh, that that's going to pay off in, in, you know, at least if there's not going to be uh, fewer problems for us, that maybe the duration won't be as long or 
it won't be quite as bad of suffering. And uh, that's that's just not the case. I think uh, God's God's armor for us is is not to take away the battles, but to protect us through the battles. And uh, so we wouldn't need armor if if there weren't uh, a mm-hmm. struggle. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think um, it's really easy to to assume that, though. Absolutely. Well, how do you define spiritual warfare in your book? And is struggling with anxiety a form of spiritual warfare? Is this something that the enemy exploits? Right. Yeah. You know, really, spiritual warfare can can just uh, send people so many different directions uh, when you talk about it. Uh, either you've got people on the one hand who uh, deny its existence at all and don't don't want to even go there. Um, and then on the other extreme, you have people seeing a, a demon behind every tree and, and really, uh, you know, giving the devil more credit than he deserves mm-hmm. for for things that are just part of life. Um, I, I kind of have a very simple view of spiritual warfare, and, and I just would define it as anything that negatively affects our spirits. So, uh, you know, that that means that uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily caused by the devil. uh, But but once something is in play, he's not above using whatever. We definitely do have an enemy and uh, he is looking for every advantage over us that he can find. And uh, so I, I do think, you know, anxiety is certainly something that the devil can use as as. Uh, spiritual warfare, but I think about Paul and his example of the the thorn in the flesh. That you know, on the one hand, he 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 refers to it as a messenger of Satan, and then he, by the end, he's flipping it around and saying that it's something God has used in his life. And so, I think the same is true for for anxiety. It started out definitely feeling like uh, this is this is of the enemy, uh, and yet I've also seen God really redeem it and turn it around to be something that he has changed my life with and, uh, and broken me down with and, uh, and broken through some things that I really needed for him to uh, dismantle. Well, let's talk about the armor of God and how it can help uh, relieve one of the anxious mind. When we read the scripture that we're not supposed to be anxious, it suggests that, yeah, that's a tendency that we have, but God has made provision for that. Talk a bit about how the armor of God can address this struggle with an anxious mind. Yeah, you know, I think uh, especially for me, uh, I'll just use my my own experience as an example here. I, I think when I I, I was diagnosed uh, in the process of all this anxiety, eventually got to a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder, and uh, you know, I think part of the compulsion part of it for me. Uh, has has been to constantly scrape uh, for my own motives, and uh, I, I, I equate it to this sort of spiritual version of compulsive hand washing. Always trying to get clean and feeling like you can never quite get there, and and this constantly, um, you know, just evaluating myself and and being really uh, judgmental of myself. And I think. Um, as as I can come to that acceptance of the fact that um, I'm never going to be able to get myself clean, uh, then I can see that the the armor of God, when He talks about the the shield of faith, it's it's putting faith 
in what Christ has already done for me and saying the only thing that is going to protect me and make me okay is what Jesus did on the cross. And that's, that becomes then my safety and my shield. And when I am hiding behind that, it's like uh, scripture says that he, he shelters us under his wings. And, uh, and so I, I learned to rely on his doing that for me rather than, than my own uh, best efforts to, to get clean on my own. And that of course is always the challenge for us to take full advantage of the tools that he's given us in order to be uh, victorious uh, in this life. You write about the, uh, the shield of faith. You write about having your feet shod about the breastplate of righteousness. Um, All of these tools can help us to, to deal with an anxious mind. How has that worked for you? You know, I think the, uh, the, the piece of the armor that I've developed the most affection for is the, the helmet of salvation um, because of everything that was happening inside my, my brain. And uh, I realized uh, I, I got this picture of, of you know, a, a, a patient in the hospital who has just undergone some sort of uh, brain, brain surgery or is recovering from a brain injury. And the, the doctors will, will put a, a helmet on them to to protect them, and I realized that the the helmet of salvation is is to cover the uh, the wounds inside my head as well as the attacks mm-hmm. from the outside, and uh, that that was a great comfort to me, and and to realize that um, I didn't need God to take the anxiety away from me. What I needed was to be freed from the power of that anxiety, and so. Uh, to, to allow it to be there and for God to use it and, and to instead of say, God, uh, eradicate this, take it, take it away, to instead say, you know, be glorified in this, uh, use it. And um, so I, I feel like that's what he's continuing to teach me. Mm. What do you say to the listener today who maybe for the first time is making a connection between the armor of God and the anxious mind that they struggle with? What do you say to them to offer some encouragement um, and some guidance, as does your book? Mm. Well, I think the first thing I would want to say is, uh, I'm, I'm so sorry for your suffering, um, and and you're not alone in it. Um, I think part of putting my story out there is just to uh, encourage people. It, it can be so isolating, and it feels like you're the only one in the world uh, who who understands what you're experiencing, and and I think um, you know I think about Jesus being so stressed in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweat uh, drops of blood mm-hmm. and and go that is that is understanding being under the pressure uh, of of uh, an anxious mind as he looked forward to or looked ahead to what was in front of him and and he understands and he knows. And and also uh, his grace in in his armor is so much bigger and and so much more of a gift for us than we could ever imagine. And so to uh, to pick it up and and grab onto it as a as a lifeline rather than as something to to do right for God. Well, the book once again is titled "Perfectly Suited: The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind." It's published by Aspire and currently available. Uh, any parting words on the, the book and to, uh, to those who, like you, have struggled with uh, anxiety? 
Well, I would just use the words of Mr. Rogers and say, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And so to be able to talk about what you're going through with someone, uh, it just um, it just does a world of good to press into relationship when when it feels like you'd rather just isolate and withdraw. Mm. And so I encourage people to to reach out. Well, let me just ask you, for those who have friends or family who struggle with anxiety, how might we best encourage them to uh, to press into what God's word offers to us in the armor of God? What would be helpful? Mm, that is a really good question. And I think um you know, the the one thing I would encourage people is to not burden people with the, the added weight of, of guilt around it and uh, to to offer the encouragement as, as comfort that's in Scripture rather than as a an admonition that you shouldn't feel that right now mm-hmm. uh, and to to validate the the feeling and to um, to come alongside and, and listen more than give advice, I think is is good. Well, again, I thank you so much for joining us today and for the book, Perfectly Suited. Thanks, Pastor. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll return to some of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that God is bringing the mission field to your front doorstep. We have people from all cultures and faiths moving into our cities and into our neighborhoods. And then she asked the question, are you ready to share your faith with your neighbor or are you fearful? Well, in her new book, The Blue Cord, the first-time author and co-founder of I Hope Ministries, Karen Bajani, she calls all Christian women of faith to be bold and courageous, and she helps equip us to do just what God is calling us to do. The Blue Cord reveals inspiring real-life stories from women who are shining the light of Christ across cultures. Christian women have been withdrawing from conversations about faith, but today the world needs Christian women to speak up, and this requires confidence to boldly proclaim the truth to a dying world all around us. Well, my guest, Karen, founded I Hope Ministries with her husband uh, to come alongside the church and change the way everyday Christians think about starting or rather sharing their faith with Muslims and other non-believers. Since 2011, I Hope has emboldened tens of thousands of Christians worldwide to share the hope of Jesus across culture and religious divides. And while her husband grew up as a persecuted Christian raised in Islamic nations, she grew up right here in the American heartland, unaware of people of other faiths. She pursued the American dream. She built a successful career as a corporate executive, but God had other plans. Now she uses her corporate skills to empower everyday Christian women like you and I to share our faith across religious boundaries. She hosts the Blue Cord by I Hope podcast, a catalyst for Christian women who know they should be sharing their faith, and she champions I Hope's women's initiative by the same name. She joins us today to talk about her uh, book, The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here, Georgine. Well, let me begin by asking you to make a reference to the Blue Cord. I know it finds its reference in Scripture. Explain to our listeners why the title. Yeah. Um, In Numbers 15, the Blue Cord was given to Israelites to wear at the hem of their garments because it symbolized God's divine commands that they serve a holy living God so that every time their eyes saw it, they would remember who he is who they were in him and what he called them to do. 
And it really resonated with me when I came across that passage because I knew that I should be sharing my faith, yet I, it was a faraway thought for me. It was like I'd forgotten who God is, what he called me to do, and who I am in him. And so that blue cord just spoke to me. Shortly after that, I read a New Testament passage where a hemorrhaging woman was pushing through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus's robe, and I realized oh, wow, he would have been wearing that tassel with the cord of blue on his hem as well. That that hemorrhaging woman touched that. And so I think it's a real reminder for us thousands of years later that we, while we don't wear that blue cord hem on the hem of our robes today, we have the blue cord of the Holy Spirit running through us that reminds us who God is Mm -hmm. and what he's called us to do today. Yeah. You make the point that uh, you entered into a situation that was radically outside of your comfort zone. It was a, a tense situation, but it taught you something impo- important about the role that we are called to play in spreading the gospel. Can you tell us a little bit about um, when you yeah. had that opportunity? Yeah. So early on, after I was married, my husband took me to the Middle East, and and he had grown up throughout the Middle East and North Africa, and we went there really into a city to encourage a fellow Christian woman missionary who was still working in a city where many Christians had fled. And so it wasn't the kind of place that my friends or family wanted me to be, and I didn't think I would actually go into that city, but we took a wrong turn, and we ended up right into the heart of the city where where my husband likes to say, it's a place where many terrorists live. And I was I have never been so afraid in my life. I was in the backseat of the car, just crying. I was sure we were going to die. And we made our way uh, to this woman missionary's home. And we came up through the elevator. The door opened. I was a hot mess. She (laughs) took one look at me and she said, welcome to God's house. And then she handed me tissue after tissue and cups of coffee after coffee. And when I was calmed long enough, I peppered her with questions to say, how could you live here in a place so pervasive and full of evil? This is a hostile culture. Why do you live here purposefully to share your faith among these people. And she, I'll never forget what she said. She was a catalyst who forever changed my thoughts. She said, Karen, Jesus is worth it all. He's always with me. And this is what he calls us to do. How could I not share my faith with these people around me who so desperately need him and don't know anything about him? Well, I thought if she could do that there in the Middle East, and she wasn't a super Christian. She was a a normal, everyday woman. The only difference between us was that she was really seeking the Lord and pressing in hard and doing what he called her to do. Mm. So I wondered, could I do the same thing back in the United States? Uh, There wasn't anyone I knew who was sharing their faith across cultures. No one was modeling that for me. No one was talking about that. But that set me on a journey to begin to see, could I do this here in the United States? Should we be sharing our faith across cultures here? And, And what I realized is the answer is yes. Yeah. In the Blue Cord, you challenge women of all ages at every stage of their Christian walk to let go of fear and doubt uh, about sharing their faith. And I think that's the the number one and two impediment that we 
that we hold on to fear and doubt, fear that we yeah. are not going to be able to answer questions or present the gospel uh, effectively or well, and doubt that God will be with us and guide us through that process. Why did you single out women in this book? I know I hope uh, addresses all believers. Why single out women in this book? And do we play a unique role in sharing the gospel with a certain segment of the population? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because uh, reaching writing this book to women was very strategic and purposeful on my part. That's because God is bringing refugees, immigrants, and international students here from some of the world's least reached nations. And these Buddhist moms, Hindu moms, Muslim moms are raising up their children to follow after God as they know him. But they don't know about Jesus. And we can't make assumptions that they do. They absolutely don't know about Jesus. And yet, right now, most everyday Christian women are not thinking about sharing Jesus with them. And so we are uniquely positioned as women, mothers, grandmothers, sisters, friends. We are uniquely suited to reach those Muslim women who are all around us. And I increasingly have missionaries say, I'm so glad you're focusing on women because Women are coming to faith from these other cultures. We, we just the harvest is plentiful. We just need so many more workers. Yeah, I think one of the uh, another impediment for women is that we don't want to offend anyone. We don't know how yeah. to approach another woman of another faith, and it seems presumptuous if we share our faith when they already have embraced something else. Can you address that uh, that reluctance, yeah. particularly when the stakes are so incredibly high? Yes, I love that question, and I'm just going to answer it in two parts. So first, we we come to the table with Western eyes, and here in the United States, you know, the two things we don't talk about are politics and religion. No nice Christian girl is going to talk about that. And yet, conversely, women from other faiths and cultures expect that if you really believe mm-hmm. your faith and are practicing it, you're going to mention it. And to not mention it to them that you're a follower of Jesus means that you don't really believe it, or it's not really important in your life. So number one, they expect you to, especially if you are living out your faith with purpose. And number two, um, we often approach the thought of sharing our faith as if all of it rests upon our own words and our own strategies. And we forget we don't have that kind of power because God the Father is the one who woos people to himself. That's right. Yeah. We need to remember that blue cord. Remember who God is, who you are in him, and what he has called us to do. We're going to take a quick Mm -hmm. break, but we'll continue our conversation with Karen Bajani. She is the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. We'll get practical when we come back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest, Karen Bajani. She is the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. And she is the co-author of I Hope Ministries, along with her husband, to come alongside the church and change the way everyday Christians like you and I think about sharing our faith with Muslims and other non-believers. Um, you are seeking uh, w- ways to change Christian women and how we think and act regarding sharing our biblical faith. What's the best place to start in this endeavor to change our, not just our perspective, but our practice? Yeah, I think the first step is to just be aware of our thoughts. 
mm-hmm. because our thoughts impact our actions and then that impacts our fruit. So if we're not thinking about people of other faiths and cultures living around us and that they don't know Jesus, we're not likely to step forward and begin to 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 take steps to share Jesus with them. And if we're feeling fearful or really ill-equipped about that too, then we're not going to do it either. So first is just to recognize what we think about that. Um, and then once we kind of begin to become aware and we say, hey, I know that God's calling me to push back this darkness and just to declare his glory among the nations, now there's a few simple steps that we can all take to live as authentic Christian witnesses to Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and people of other faiths all around us. How important is it that we understand their faith tradition before we share our own? Or is it important? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Oftentimes our self-need is that we need to practically get a PhD in Islam and no <laughs> Urdu before we go out there and engage with with someone of another faith or culture. But the fact is that, that Muslims all around you, Hindus, Buddhists, they can come from all different kinds of backgrounds, countries, different generations. And so you might study up for one thing, but that may not equip you to engage with your next door neighbor. So one of the greatest and best ways to do is just really lean in as an authentic Christian witness and ask curious, open-ended questions about them. And then it gets to be really fun, really fun. Yeah, I appreciate that um, you take the pressure off of having a 15-minute conversation and dominating 14 minutes of it with my testimony that we actually yeah. engage in conversation. We uh, are genuinely interested in the people with whom we're speaking. Uh, we're interested in who they are, their background, their story, and sort of earn the right to share our story as well, because we do have that kind of a genuine uh, interest in them, not just another notch on our Bible. Absolutely. I think one of the greatest fears we all have is we don't want to be that person who is that pushy, proselytizing evangelist, because we've seen people around us do it badly, and we don't want to do it that way. And so in an effort not to do it badly, we don't do anything at Mm -hmm. all. But but here's the thing, hope is not a strategy. So there's really only just a few things that we can all know and do that get us off on a running start. Your first chapter is titled, who are you afraid of? And again, I think that's where we start is is confronting what is it and who is it that we're afraid of? Can you discuss that just a bit? Yeah, yeah. I talked with a lot of women across North America and just said, hey, what holds you back from sharing your faith? I know what holds me back, but I wanted to know what, what holds other women back as, as well. And so what I found was there, there are all these things that are common patterns across all of us. Just when we engage with someone who's different than us, we're wired within our within our human nature to be fearful. So, so number one, we might just be fearful um, because we lack skill, or we're fearful because when we get to the bottom line, we're more concerned with about what people think about us than what God thinks about us. Mm. And that's probably the biggest one, the one I hear the most. We're trying to please people. We're trying hard not to offend. And in that process, we've forgotten who God is and what he called us to do. And that, of course, takes us to the blue cord. Remembering who he is is uh, the the first step in really understanding why we uh, even think about doing what his word calls us to do. Where do we go from there? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is it's, 
recognizing our thoughts is half the battle. It's easy within our culture today to just get in our comfort zone within our culture and and let that culture dictate our thoughts and our actions. Um, and that's when we, as followers of Jesus, we're called to not conform to the world, but be transformed by by the living word. And so that's the first place to start is realize um, what's what's truth and what's counterfeit within our within our world because there are a lot of people of other faiths and cultures all around us and I'm glad we live in a nation where we're free to share our faith and free to speak out about what we believe and yet all those beliefs can't be true so it's important that we know truth yeah yeah um, and that we're not reading other Christians we really know what what our biblical faith is founded on. Because when we begin to engage with people of other faiths and cultures, it really causes you to be stronger in your own faith about what you believe and why you believe it. One of the things you write about that's um, an important need is compassion. What role does Mm -hmm. that play in uh, addressing someone with a different worldview about what you know to be true about the God of the universe? Yeah. Uh, Well, number one, Jesus was just full of compassion. Mm -hmm. And he modeled that for us throughout the New Testament. And even as we look over the whole arc of the biblical Bible, we see how God showed compassion to his people over and over and over again. So we are to model our lives after Jesus. And if he was compassionate, that means that, that we can be compassionate too. I think there's a difference between being empathetic, though, and having compassion, because when we're empathetic, it means I can look across the street and say, gosh, my Muslim neighbor, she doesn't know Jesus. She really needs to know Jesus, and I can empathize with that. But when I have compassion, it compels me to action, to engage with her as an authentic Christian witness, and to point her to Jesus as, as hope. Um, that's the kind of compassion that I'm talking about here. Yeah, I appreciate that distinction. Uh, You mentioned it earlier, but you have a chapter titled Hope is Not a Strategy. And I think that's where some of us, I just hope someone shares the gospel with uh, fill in the blank. I just hope that they somehow have an encounter with Christ. We hope, but we don't see ourselves as part of that story, part of that, uh, that process. And Compassion says, I, I so long out of compassion to be a part of that story and to introduce them to the greatest story ever told that you're not mm-hmm. reluctant. You're, you're no, no longer the, the thing you think about most. How am I going to feel? How, what am I going to do? <laughs> you're focusing on the needs of others. Right. Absolutely. When I first started this journey, I worried about all of those things. And the more that I met women of other faiths and cultures who left everything to follow Jesus and said, Karen, Jesus is worth it all. It really caused me to pause and consider, did I, did I really believe that God loves me? And in that process, when I really begin to believe that and know that within the depths of my soul, then I would be compelled to share that joy um, with other people, no matter what. And so, so when I realized that my own faith was coming up short in that area, it compelled me to lean in and to begin to seek God um, and have that kind of faith, a faith that was worth sharing and not being worried about being offending, offending other people um, because they didn't, they didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Again, the book we're talking about is The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your, uh, your Purpose. Um, in order to walk in obedience, do we need to exercise our faith? And I mean that in the sense that 
one would exercise the physical body. Your proficiency improves over time when you exercise. You can lift more weight. You have more stamina. In the same way, when we practice our faith, when we engage others with the gospel, Mm -hmm. are we exercising our faith in such a way that our confidence in him increases and our capacity increases as well? Yeah, so one of the easiest things that we can start with is studies say time and time again, when we engage with God's Word at least four times a week, really pressing in and studying God's Word, it changes us. It changes who, how we see God and how we see ourselves in Him and what He called us to do. So that's step one, is to lean in and study God's Word and to pray. Because that's where everything springs from. And that gives that gives you a faith that's rooted deeply. And then from there, that then you can spring forward and you feel compelled truly because you see what a life transformation it's making within you. And you can't help but share that with other people. You want them to have that same kind of joy and you're willing to press through the discomfort to get to that. Yeah. Um, the subtitle of your book is Connecting Your Faith with your purpose. And so this is very practical. There are stories of women who have uh, engaged others, perhaps stepping outside of their comfort zone to do so. And and they're so encouraging. You also have at the end of each chapter, a think it through uh, segment at the uh, end of each chapter that helps us kind of think through what we've just read, the stories and the challenge that you present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a this is great to think these through things through yourself with the Lord, and then also just grab a, a friend or two and just talk about these things together. These are things that within the church right now we're not really talking about, and we have an opportunity as as women, the key holders to the faith of the next generation, really to begin to talk about this topic with, within the church. Um, do women around us who don't know Jesus, do they need to know Jesus? And the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. What is our role in that? Is that something that we pay missionaries to do, super Christians to go to do? No. Jesus called us all to be his ambassadors. And so it's through community as we wrestle with these questions together, we can lock arms and be more emboldened together to begin to practice sharing our faith. Now, you host a podcast, The Blue Cord by I Hope Podcast. How can our listeners connect with you there? Yeah, look, just look for The Blue Cord, comma, I Hope Ministries on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or you could also find it on the website, thebluecord.org, and you can listen that way, too. Well, Karen, I so appreciate this very practical book that speaks to the heart of women and calls us outside of our comfort zone into obedience to Christ and to share his gospel. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you, too. Really appreciate it. Again, the book, The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose, Karen Bajani. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As promised, here's James Blend in his conversation with Scott Box, author of Heroic Disgrace. Thanks, Georgine. I am really excited about this next interview because it covers something really important that uh, we don't talk about quite as often as we can and... Uh, Mental illness in the in the Christian world is, is a real thing, and it exists. And uh, worship leader Scott Box's first book, Heroic Disgrace, talks about his journey with bipolar disorder. And it uh, talks about how it brought him closer to Christ, how it caught, taught him to be desperate for Christ. 
And uh, it is a fantastic read. It is imp- an important book. And uh, I'm certainly glad to have him with us today. The book, again, Heroic Disgrace. And uh, he joins us from Central Oregon. And uh, full disclosure for all, he's also been a friend of mine for about 25 years. Scott Box, <laughs> thanks for joining me. Hey, James. It's a pleasure to be here. And I love hearing your voice, man. Thanks for talking about my book today. And you're right. It's a big deal to talk about mental illness, especially in the Christian community. I think, uh, you know, it's certainly, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, especially in these post-pandemic days, it is so important um, to be mindful of our own mind um, because of yeah. the fact that, uh, you know, we've all as a as a society been through a lot. Talk a little bit. Let's go back to the absolute earliest days. I think some people come with, up with the misconception that, if you if you have a mental illness, you must have had a terrible upbringing. Talk a little <laughs> bit about your upbringing and uh, kind of explain to people about the, how you were raised. Golly, that's so true. I I had I really had an amazing upbringing. I had great parents, and uh, I'm the oldest of three kids, and so uh, you know I've got probably the typical oldest child. Uh, issues <laughs> but but from a stable from, i came from a stable home and i didn't come from a place of of chaos and and fear if you will so 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 yeah if, if that answers kind of your question as far as my my background that's the that's the very basics but i had a great dad i had a great mom yeah it's one of those things that uh, you know certainly i know a lot of people do have bad upbringings and it causes things that i certainly don't discount that but for those of us who consider ourselves to have had regular or, you know, not regular, but uh, right. what's considered right. normal. There's no such thing, but, <laughs> right. you know, nor- normal's right. only a setting on the dryer. Um, you know, I, I, I look at, I look at my upbringing and it was, it was fairly common, typical, whatever. But as I, as I've grown to realize, as I, as I've worked through my own anxiety disorder, both of my parents had severe anxiety. And I re- only recognize that in looking in retrospect. Uh, both it it was different in both of them and how they handled it. But uh, certainly, you know, it, you don't. Ha- it does not matter what your background is. Mental illness hits everybody. Well, and I I think James, the thing for me that was so staggering that the thing that 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 cut me off at the knees or or you know whatever it, whatever analogy you want to use was I. I I had, my dad was a, a role model of giant proportions for me. Uh, he, especially in public, uh, dad, dad was, and just managed himself so smoothly. And <laughs> I'm just not that guy. I'm, I'm not very smooth. <laughs> and, and so I felt like I had these giant shoes to fill. And then as life, as I grew into adult life, I realized I was my own person, and yet I I was still trying to fill the shoes of my dad, and that was that was a really that was a rough that was a rough thing because I I, I couldn't I'm I'm not my dad I'm Scott Box not Tom Box. <laughs> so. Yeah, and it, you know, certainly I, I'm you know having met your father I, I yeah yeah you, you're not your father and that's. Neither a compliment nor an insult. It's just the reality of it, uh, right? Why and there's you, anxiety. There's anxiety that goes around that, though. For or at least that's what I I experienced in my journey. Kind of 
let's continue a little bit on your journey. I mean, it's certainly uh, it's it's one I'm quite familiar with, as I I, I suppose I've played a small part in it over the years. Oh, yeah. Um, the talk about your kind of your transition. Um, you know, you went to college in in Newburgh, um, and you basically stayed in town afterwards. Talk about the life transitions that occurred. Um, as you transitioned from a student into working at George Fox, you know, meeting your wife, and, and then inevitably uh, winding up a worship leader. Yeah. So the worship stuff happened back in uh, yeah, kind of the music side of things happened when I was uh, dating a girl in high school, and that that just became a part of of my journey. And frankly, I'll say that 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 quite honestly really helped keep me on the straight and narrow as far as even sexual purity uh, back in high school, because I was on platform in front of people and I didn't want to, I didn't want to quote screw up. And uh, so, so that was, that was a blessing really to have that music church slash church worship component uh, connected to my life, you know, from right around 16, 17, 18 years old. I carried that into college, and then, uh, yeah, I, I had been a baseball player, uh, went to George Fox, was recruited to play there, and then ended up throwing my arm out, playing semi-pro uh, baseball, which is like my sophomore summer. And anyway, uh, baseball needed to be done. And so I helped at George Fox as the, the chapel band leader, Met Carrie Ann. We got married after college. Uh, helped at a church plant up in Seattle, but then kind of just got our backsides kicked. Ministry can do that, <laughs> and so and then we ended up back in Newburgh uh, the second year of our marriage. And I was helping at George Fox, and that's when you and I met. Mm-hmm. You were working for a promotion company uh, and or a production company. And we had the opportunity to to hang out together. And that's right around when kind of in my book, I, I say the feces hit the fan. And that's that's right about when it when it happened. So pardon me for the uh, the crass delivery on that. But that's one of the subsections in my book, even. Well, let's let's get into this a little bit. Uh, we've got to break in about two minutes, but I want I want to get the started. Let's talk about, you know, when you first realized something not right here. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to identify it, James. I, I, I knew that as Carrie Ann and I were, were, you know, young, married, and we had just had a child our first, our firstborn was a daughter, and I didn't know what, what. I didn't know there. There was nothing. There was no label to put on why I was having these massive highs, and why I was also then every time I would have this incredible high, I would drop down into this ridiculous low. And I will be honest that I loved the highs. There, there were aspects that were really kind of drug like. Uh, but we can talk about that more uh, down the road. Absolutely. My guest is Scott Fox. His book is Heroic Disgrace. 
Um, this is James Blinn, the producer of the show, uh, graciously being handed the microphone by Georgine Rice. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Make no mistake about it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blinn, sitting in for a few moments with uh, for Georgine Rice. I'm speaking today with Scott Box's book, Heroic Disgrace, and... Uh, before before we get back into it, for folks who want to check the book out, uh, who heard about it in the last segment, how can they grab a hold of it? You bet. Heroicdisgrace.com is the the best place to go, obviously. It's any place where books are sold. Uh, but you can find me. Uh, well, that just answers your question. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll uh, mention that again. If you missed that, we'll mention that again at the end of the segment. Um, Scott Box is uh, here to talk about his journey with uh, bipolar, and okay. um, certainly uh, in the Christian community, uh, you know, mental illness is uh, a, a big topic right now, especially coming out of the pandemic. Before we get back to our conversation a little bit, for somebody with bipolar, what was the pandemic like for you? Oh, uh, it was brutal. I, I, I will tell you the thing. That's such a great question, James. The thing that drove me nuts was not being able to see faces. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a fairly conservative person anyway, so I, I didn't like the whole face mask thing, but we don't need to get into that other than to say that I hated not being able to use my own face and then to read other people's faces. I hated the constriction. It was, it was really, really difficult for me, uh, from an irritation standpoint because of, uh, the the way that irritation crosses over into the the symptoms of, of bipolar disorder is rough. Yeah, I, I, you know, obviously, as somebody with an anxiety disorder and ADD who needs a routine, um, it, it was you know the, the fifteen months spent working from home on the show uh, oh. was was yeah. complex at times, and I, I get it. I mean, it certainly and, and the I'm sure I will feel the after effects like many people for years to come. Yeah, yeah. This this. Uh, this is this is going to have had a profound long-term effect on culture, society, and it, frankly, I I know that we're done with it in in some respects, but but you're right, it, it the long-term lingering effects, uh, especially in the younger generation, uh, is we're, we have yet to see the gigantic influence it will have had. So, getting back to our conversation that we had uh, we're having before the uh, before the break. Um, you talked a bit about know, not knowing what was going on, you know, the highs, the lows, and whatnot. Talk about your when you were initially diagnosed, what was you know, and your thoughts about uh, one knowing what it was finally, but also finding out what it was. Yeah. So I, my experience might be very different than than other folks' experience. When you get a diagnosis, it's like, oh no, we've got a thing. You know, fill in the blank. Uh, in, in my case, things had been so bad for so long. It, and so I was about 25 years old and when, when things kind of got crazy, if you will, and then progressively got more and more difficult. Crazy is not the right way to say it. But, but uh, by the time diagnosis hit, I was 30 years old or when, when I got the diagnosis, I was so thankful <laughs> to have a, a, something to call what was wrong with me. And the fact that bipolar two disorder was the thing that they gave me. I, I remember 
being in the car with Carrie Ann, my wife, as we were hopping on Interstate 5, heading from Salem, Oregon, back north, uh, northwest to, to Newburgh, and being like, yes, there's this thing. And, and not only is it there a name for it, but there's, there's, you know, there's strategy in which to, to use to, to get healthy again. And, oh, James, that was such a beautiful thing. Yeah, that that's sometimes it's, it it is the power of knowing. So let's talk about. I mean, obviously, a big part of this book, and the main, I'm sure you know one of the main reasons to even write it, you know, is your faith um, and and how it has endured and grown um, through the chaos and uh, desperation. Well, here's the thing: uh, bipolar disorder for me forced me to rely on Jesus in a way I never realized I was designed to rely on Jesus. That's the catch. It's not like that I was, I, I, I didn't know that I needed to know Jesus more at that type of thing. It was that I had this massive recognition that I, I'm designed to rely on Jesus. I hit the end of my rope. Like, I hit the end of me uh, at a point where I, I think I was, maybe what I mean is I was at an age where I'm so much younger than other people that finally, or that don't hit the end of themselves until, you know, maybe they're 60, 70, 80 years old, or they get a terminal diagnosis for something. And they're like, God, they cry out to God. In my case, I hit the end of me when I was 30 years old, if you will. And bipolar disorder forced me to rely on Jesus in a way that I then recognized, oh man, I've been designed for this. I'm actually, this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Uh, so if that answers your question, I, I, I hope it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I want to um, change gears a little bit, talk, talking about the book. The foreword is written by Brian Head Welch of Corn. Yes. Now yes. <laughs> he, he himself is an amazing story. Uh, talk a little bit about your, your relationship there. Yeah, you bet. Brian is my first cousin, and I have watched Brian uh, since, I think it was 2005, when Brian had this incredible experience with Jesus in his life. And uh, when I say incredible, I mean to the point where uh, he, God, got a, God got a hold of him in such a way that Brian was able to essentially flush methamphetamines down the toilet and never go back to them, which is as most people know, almost impossible to do. Uh, Brian has played a gigantic role in my life in particular because I was able to see Brian live a lifestyle that changed, that changed me. I'm, here, here's the, the, the thing that I use in the book is that the rock star taught the worship leader me how to worship. <laughs> and that was just such a mind-blowing experience uh, to, to see that I needed to live my life the way that my rock star cousin was living his life once Jesus got a hold of him, James. Yeah, I remember calling you that when, when that news came out and said, is that true? Uh, because <laughs> know, it just man. seemed so unbelievable. And I, I remember a couple, a couple of years later when uh, we had a chance to meet your cousin. And, I mean, yeah. one of the things that I've always noticed about you is, I mean, you have a kind and gentle spirit. And I was not expecting that from Brian, but that was 100%. There was just, you, know, you see this rock star looking fellow, 
and the kindness and warmth in his eyes. It was, it was, it was something else and only something Christ could have done. Yes. Yes, exactly. Brian is a special individual because, I mean, he, because of what Christ has done in his life and his, he is, he is gentle, uh, as you say, and graceful, uh, gracious, just as you say. It's, it's, and I'm not just saying that because he's famous. It's because it's true. You're right, James. Last thing for me, the, um, if, if you had to describe the book in, in a very short period of time, but the most important part and what's most important to you that people understand, what would that be? Heroic Disgrace, I would say, James, is a story for anyone who has been ch- touched by the, the painful hopelessness of mental illness. Uh, that's the bottom line. It's, it's for any of us that have struggled with, with, in my case, bipolar disorder or mental illness of any kind. Fantastic. And again, where can folks get the book? Uh, HeroicDisgrace.com is where you can find me. You can also find me at Worship Hero on Facebook, where I do a ton of I put a ton of material, and then uh, I've got a new YouTube channel. Uh, you can search for Heroic Disgrace on YouTube. Scott Box, it is it has not only been an honor to talk to you about this book, it's been an honor to be your friend, and I Thank certainly um, am praying for this book. I'm praying that the right people read it, the right people see it, the right people hear it, and that people will read it with an open heart and an open mind. And thanks for joining us on The Georgine Rice Show. My pleasure, James Blend. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.